Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome everyone today. My name is Brian Rogers and I serve as president of the Jesse Helms Center Foundation. We are located in Wingate, North Carolina, just outside of Charlotte. And the purpose of the Helms Center, we're a 501c3 uh, nonprofit organization that houses uh, the Senator's archives. We focus on youth programming for on free enterprise as well as hosting lectures with our partner here at the Heritage Foundation and other lectures that we do throughout the state and our country. So why the Helms Center Lecture? Jesse Helms served in the United States Senate for 30 years. In 1994, he became chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, becoming the second North Carolinian uh, to do so, besides Nathaniel Macon. He was a leader, top leader in the modern conservative movement. And he, along with Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, uh, were instrumental. He was very instrumental in winning the Cold War and defeating communism. Matter of fact, Margaret Thatcher wrote, Jesse Helms' record as a freedom fighter is unmatched. He was also well-known uh, a bipartisan senator. He and Joe Biden were very close friends. And to this day, uh, Vice President Biden still talks fondly of his relationship with Helms. And we refer to in the archives some love letters, really, that Joe Biden and, and Helms uh, uh, shared that are uh, open. We've put them on our website that are kind of unique. But in 2001, when Helms announced his retirement, Walter Russell Mead wrote in the Wall Street Journal's opinion section, quote, as Senator Helms prepares to step down, I cannot help but feel that we are losing something all too rare in American politics. A man who consistently put principle before expediency, loyalty before ambition. In these qualities, we could use a lot more like him. And of course, Senator Helms' admiration of the Heritage Foundation is very well documented. He and Dr. Ed Fulner were good friends. And on October 6, 2000, in a letter he penned to uh, Dr. Fulner, he wrote, if America is saved, Heritage will have played an enormous role in her salvation. And finally, I know Senator Helms and Mrs. Helms, too, would be so proud, not only be humbled by this lecture, but also be so very proud of Secretary Wilkie, uh, who served on his staff. And when, when uh, Secretary Wilkie uh, stepped away from his staff to pursue other things, Senator Helms wrote, wrote a, a letter to him and, and quote, uh, Senator Helms said, you are a young man of high principle. 
great judgment and remarkable wisdom for one so young. I predict a great future for you. And he was right, like he has been on so many ways. Um, but introducing Senator Wilkie, I mean, Secretary Wilkie today, is retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, Jim Carfano, and he serves as the Vice President at Heritage Catherine in Shelby Cullen Davis's Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy and the E.W. Richardson Fellow. He's been here since 2009 and served uh, in our U.S. Army for 25 years, in addition to leading Heritage National Security and Foreign Policy team. Uh, he also serves on the nonprofit uh, Esprit de Corps, which educates the public about veterans' affairs. So I'll turn it over to uh, Colonel Garifano. Well, this is the best guy day of my life. I get to introduce a great friend and a great American. And I, I love what Senator Helms wrote. Unfortunately, he's no longer a young fellow, but he's still a man of high principles. Um, thank you, Brian. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real honor to partnership with the, with the Jesse Helms Center on this lecture series and, and on other projects that we've done over the years. And so you guys bring so much to us, and we're just so grateful for that. So thank you. Um, we've done. We've had a number of impressive speakers over the years. However, we've never ever had a personal speaker with a personal connection with the senator as we do today with our guest, Secretary of Veteran Affairs Robert Wilkie. Secretary Wilkie was an aide to Senator Helms in the 1990s, served on the board of the Jesse Helms Center, and actually stood right here on the stage, had my job, and introduced so many uh, distinguished speakers over the years. So to have him here. Doing this is what great payback that is. Um, uh, he is a guest. He is our guest today, and deservedly so. He was confirmed by the U.S. Senate on July 23rd, 2018, and sworn in on July 30th, 2018, as the 10th Secretary of Veteran Affairs. Prior to his current position, Mr. Wilkie was the Under Secretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness Issues, the Principal Advisor to the Secretary and Deputy, Deputy Secretary of Defense for Total Force Management. He also served. Jim Mattis as the Undersecretary of Defense, and Donald Rumsfeld and Robert Gates as an Assistant Secretary of Defense. Before that, he was in a special assistant to the President of, the United, uh, President of the United States for National Security Affairs and a Senior Director at the National Security Council. When did, you, did you ever see this guy or, at all? In, for, uh, before, <laughs> for five years, he was Vice President for Strategic Programs for one of the largest engineering and program management firms in the world. Um, he is a colonel in the United States Air Force. We don't hold that against him. And he previously served in the Navy Reserve with the Joint Force. I do hold that against him. Um, uh, Joint Force Intelligence Command, Naval Special Warfare Group, too. But he does have Army guys in his family, so that that's a great redeeming value on his part. Um, among his many awards and decorations, Mr. Wilkie is a recipient of the D Defense Distinguished Public Service Medal, the highest non-career civilian award for the department. Today, he is here to talk about a subject which was very, very dear to Senator Helms' heart, something that's very close to Heritage, and I know very close to everybody who's in this room, otherwise you wouldn't be here today. The, one of the most important things that we do, which is honor our veterans in, in deed and in spirit. Ladies and gentlemen, please join with me and give a warm welcome to the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colonel, and thank you, Brian, and I will 
make a confession right at the beginning. Yes, I am uh, the one who broke the mold in the family. I, I have my hearing. I am not a field. I am not a field. I, I know you got it. I'm not a field artillery officer. Um, but uh, it is an honor for me to be here. I, I was thinking, as, as Colonel said, about the times I've stood up here. And the roll call of Americans and foreign dignitaries who have delivered this address is not only impressive, but it is, I think it is indicative of a better time in Washington when there are fewer barriers between those who might have had differing views. But as Senator Helms used to say when he would quote Lyndon Johnson, people that you may have disagreed with in the morning but walked out arm in arm at the end of the day. Uh, he used that in his eulogy of his very good friend and one of the great Americans of the second half of the 20th century, Hubert Humphrey two people who you could have not have found on more polar opposites, but came together in one, one regard, and that was their love of country and their belief that the security of the United States meant that the world had a hope to be free. So amongst those who have stood in this, in this place, John Kyle, Marco Rubio, John Bolton, Mike Lee, Ted Cruz, my friend, the ambassador to the United States from the state of Israel, Ron Dermer, and Niall Gardner's friend, Daniel Hannon, a conservative member of the European Parliament. So this is about them, and this is about the, the legacy of Senator Helms, as Brian, Brian said so eloquently. But I'm going to go back to the 1970s, not in this country, but in the United Kingdom, the aircraft carrier of freedom, the place where democratic representative government began. In the 1970s, when Senator Helms came to the United States Senate, the United Kingdom was on the eve of destruction. I saw it as a young American whose father was stationed on a British military base. What we now know as the Soviet-backed Labor unions were holding the UK in hostage. The welfare state drew the life out of the people, and the socialist labor government timorously accepted the United Kingdom's devolution into third world status. Out of the depths of those times came two remarkable leaders. One was a Methodist grocer's daughter. The other was a Baptist sheriff's son. They became united in an unapologetic defense of the belief that Western civilization was worth celebrating and defending. It was Britain and her progeny, the United States, that created the notion of a limited government in which the democratic impulse was balanced by political traditions resting on order, faith, liberty, and justice. Margaret Thatcher and Jesse Helms were cut from the same cloth. The Protestantism of their youth forged in the small towns of Middle England and Western North Carolina taught them that a nation is built on the home and the family, not with programs and bureaucrats.
their Protestant morality and form their politics. Churchill and Jefferson were their lodestars. Evil to them was not an impolitic term to shy away from. Evil was a threat to be confronted and destroyed. In the mid-1970s, when Mrs. Thatcher was first elevated to the leader of the conservative party, her avowed purpose was to reach out to potential allies across the ocean. And she decided to come to the United States, but the socialist prime minister of the United Kingdom, James Callaghan, denied her the use of the British embassy where she could have set up an office and actually conducted meetings with famous Americans. Enter William F. Buckley, who called his friend Jesse Helms and said, I need a favor. I need an office for somebody I want you to meet. She's sort of like you. She's just from Middle England. But she wants to meet your friends. And out of that one phone call, Mrs. Thatcher began a journey that not only transformed the United Kingdom, but led her to a role as John the Baptist, heralding the arrival of Ronald Reagan a few years later. In Senator Helms' Senate office, Margaret Hilda Thatcher sat down with Ronald Reagan, Milton Friedman, Billy Graham, and Barry Goldwater, and the forging of a blueprint that swept away the sclerotic, democratic, socialist governments in London and Washington was formed. Thatcher saved Great Britain, much to the chagrin of the old boys in her own party. She set an example that the stronger partner personified by Ronald Reagan used to restore American pride and vanquish Soviet tyranny. But in all of her trials, in all of her trials through almost 13 years leading the United Kingdom, she never forgot the role played by Jesse Holmes. Not in robust health, she made the journey from London to Monroe, North Carolina, when the Helms Center was dedicated in April of 2000. And as Brian said, she noted on that day that Jesse Helms' record as a freedom fighter for the West is unmatched, and his convictions so triumphantly validated in circumstances so embarrassing for his critics that they've been rewriting them ever since. As she said, Senator No always said, yes, liberty. It was not easy for Margaret Thatcher and Jesse Helms to stand athwart the tides global totalitarianism, and y'all stop. Senator Helms used to say, they don't understand. I don't care what the press says about me, and neither does Maggie. But no one was ever neutral about either one of them. And that is a testament to what they thought politics should be. Not a tussle of banalities, but a battleground for passion and ideas. They never lost an election, and that's what's often forgotten and they understood freedom better than many of their critics. Senator Helms resolutely believed that American freedom required a massive national defense. He told the veterans of foreign wars at the old Sir Walter Raleigh Hotel in Raleigh back in 1973, sooner or later, a weak America will be challenged. Sooner or later, a weak America will have to fight or surrender. Senator Helms, from that small town, 
in southwestern North Carolina understood better than anybody who did the fighting. He said on that day that the fighting will be done, but it will be done as it always is done by the average man, by the fellow who runs the gas station and the fellow who runs the little grocery store in North Carolina and the barbers of North Carolina and people carrying rifles and not typewriters. And he understood better than anyone else what a scratch farmer from Mall, Tennessee, by way of Buncombe County, North Carolina, meant when he said, liberty and freedom and democracy are so very precious that you don't fight to win them once and then stop. Liberty and freedom and democracy are prizes awarded only to those people who fight to win and then keep fighting eternally to hold them. That fellow was Alvin York, the greatest of American soldiers of the Great War. So let me tell you for a minute why the Department of Veterans Affairs exists. It exists because this nation knows the values of the prize that veterans have won and defended. The Veterans Affairs Department exists to care for those who defend this country, as Senator Helm said. The gas station men, the small town grocers, the barbers, ordinary Americans asked to do extraordinary things to defend this country, just like Alvin York. I've been spending a great deal of time in the last year talking about the end of the war to end all wars because that's the war in which the United States of America erupted onto the world stage. 4.7 million Americans served in that war and they came from all corners to plant the American flag on the globe. There were others other than Alvin York there were ordinary Americans like Needham Roberts and William Johnson, members of the legendary 369th Infantry Regiment from New York. 191 days in the front lines, more than any other American regiment. 1,500 casualties, more than any other unit in the American Expeditionary Forces. They were so ferocious that the Kaiser himself called them the Hel Harlem Hellfighters. Over 100 soldiers from that unit were awarded the Croix de Guerre. No unit received more recommendations and honors, and no unit had more holders the Medal of Honor, even though some of those honors came long after the recipients had passed away. Another ordinary American at that time was a nearsighted farmer from Jackson County, Missouri who lied and cheated to get into the field artillery because he could not bear the thought of his friends and neighbors going to war and he not being there to support them. He had two horses shot from under him during the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, and he would go on to be one of the greatest presidents in our history, Captain Harry S. Truman. My own great-grandfather was there. He left a small-town law practice in the Mississippi Delta in a part-time teaching job at Ole Miss to join up with the American Army assembling in Camp Gordon, Georgia. In another part of Georgia was my father's grand, my, my wife's grandfather, a teenager from southeastern North Carolina who'd never ventured much beyond two or three counties in the Carolinas, but before he was 18, he was marching up the Champs-Élysées into the bloody hell of the Meuse-Argonne. 
4.7 million Americans took up arms, 200,000 wounded, 150,000 did not return. At that time, America was not ready for them. Chaotic and inefficient series of organizations tried and failed to serve people like Roberts, Johnson, Truman, Bullard, and Somerville. Veterans care was a national embarrassment. Major General Frank Hines, a World War I veteran himself and the VA's first administrator, led the consolidation and reform that unified and improved responsiveness for veterans across America. In the wake of World War II, with 16 million returning World War II veterans, after 22 years at the helm, General Hines stepped down. And a grateful President Truman turned to the one man that he knew could carry on the legacy, General Omar Bradley. When anyone tells me that problems in this town or in this country are intractable, I ask them to think about the first eight weeks that Omar Bradley served as the head of the Veterans Administration. 11 million Americans demobilized. In two years, General Bradley built 52 hospitals and established the academic relationships that today serve as the core of veterans' care in 172 hospitals and 1,200 clinics. The Washington Post praised Omar Bradley's revolution. VA brings new hope to disabled veterans. Medical care of veterans rated at top. He turned the VA on a dime and completely overhauled and revolutionized the system. It was Bradley who established the institution that we know now. And few know that he was behind the 1945 Homestead Program that meant World War II veterans could get community care with a doctor of their choice and buy drugs from their local pharmacies. I doubt anybody on the other side ever talked about privatization when Omar Bradley ran the Department of Veterans Affairs because it was about serving veterans' needs. There are also other war stories that need to be told. In the 1960s and 70s, I saw through the eyes of a child that America forgot the wisdom of Alvin York and Harry Truman. And it forgot the important reasons why we send Americans overseas and why we must welcome them when they come home. As a child, I learned the, at firsthand the price of war. My father was grievously wounded in the invasion of Cambodia. We didn't see him for almost a year as he recovered. But because of how our veterans were treated then, my father and his colleagues paid another price. He was actually allowed to recover for three years by the good graces of the great General Creighton Abrams. And he did return to Fort Bragg in the All-American Division, the most decorated combat unit in the armed forces of the United States, the unit that Alvin York served on the Western Front in 1918. My father, as a senior officer in that division, was not allowed to wear his uniform off post because the leadership in Washington, D.C. were afraid of the reaction that he would get. That was not Berkeley, California. 
That was not Cambridge, Massachusetts. That was southeastern North Carolina, the heart of Richard Nixon country. And as a child growing up, both at Fort Sill and Fort Bragg, I also saw this world through the eyes of kindergarten and elementary school classmates. There was always a chance in my world that when a classmate was called to the principal's office, there was bad news waiting. It wasn't a call to go to the doctor. Something had happened in Southeast Asia. That is what happened on April 4th, 1975. President Ford had ordered the evacuation of all of the orphanages in Saigon in anticipation of the arrival of the North Vietnamese Army. He called it Operation Baby Lift. One of the Air Force volunteers was a medic, a master sergeant from Harnett County, North Carolina, named Denning Cicero Johnson. He was taking care of 138 Vietnamese orphans on a C-5 as it lifted off from Tan Sanut Air Base. It didn't make it to the end of the runway. Over 100 children died that day and 11 airmen. 44 years after that aircraft went down, my wife and I escorted Sergeant Johnson's daughter, a friend of ours from our childhood, to panel 1W of the Vietnam Memorial and watch Denise touch the name of her father, one of the last four Americans to perish in that conflict. So has the nation corrected the mistakes of the 1960s and 70s? In many ways it has. I had the privilege of speaking at the Nixon Library two weeks ago and I said that President Nixon would actually be astonished to appreciate that even Hollywood stands up for veterans. And that has allowed us to make important changes on behalf of veterans because we actually are one of the few, few causes in the United States that can engender support from every corner of America. One of our efforts is to create a modern 21st century healthcare administration. I referred back to my father's wounds. After 30 years of jumping out of airplanes, he needed two new knees, two new hips, had a bad back, and had lead in his body that they couldn't take out of. For the rest of his life, he carried around an 800-page paper record. That is what our veterans have been subjected to for decades. But under this president's leadership, we are finally able to begin putting in place an electronic health care record that will begin to be built the moment that young American walks in to a military entrance processing station so that the by the time that American becomes a veteran, we will know everything that had happened to her on her journey through the armed forces. No longer will veterans be forced to travel to doctor's offices with boxes of paper that disintegrate in their hands. The other thing that I, I wanted to address is a charge that many of you have heard. On June 6th, ironically, the Congress chose D-Day for us to begin the implementation of the Mission Act, the most transformative piece of legislation in the history of our department, second only to the GI Bill of June of 1944. The Mission Act says, finally, that if we cannot meet the needs of veterans across this country, we will give veterans 
across America the opportunity to get their care wherever they live. But let me tell you what else has happened. I've also been allowed to present to the Congress the largest budget in the history of our department, $220 billion, calling for 400,000 employees across 172 hospitals and 1,200 clinics. Only in Washington, D.C. would somebody say that a budget of that size would be a clarion call to privatize an institution. So let me tell you where we are. In the last year, we have had 3.3 million appointments over the rate that we had last year. More than 1.6 million of those appointments have been, as General Bradley predicted, in our communities. For the first time in history, our veterans now have the same access to care that their neighbors do. They don't have to go to the emergency room when they have the flu or a cold or a sprained ankle. We are giving them access to urgent care. And in the last few months, we have approved over 6,000 clinics from Alaska to Florida to allow our veterans the comfort and the safety of knowing that that treatment is there whenever they need it. But perhaps the biggest challenge that we face is one that is outside the walls of our department. Uh, Senator Tillis has referred to me often as Forrest Gump because I tend to um, take every issue that I confront and re uh, refer back to the Roman Empire, at least 19th century America. In fact, Senator Helms once confronted me, actually it was my first day working for him, and he looked at my Wake Forest resume and said, son, that is a magnificent Wake Forest resume. Politics and classics. You are qualified to be a tour guide in Rome <laughs> and have long conversations with 90-year-old priests. But let me go back to the 1890s. Benjamin Harrison was in the White House. Now, nobody knows much about Benjamin Harrison, other than his claim to fame was that he served four years in between two non-successive terms of Grover Cleveland. But before he went back to Indiana, he acknowledged something that began to bother him when he was a major general in the Civil War. He had noticed in the time between the end of the war and the time that he had been the governor of Indiana, U.S. Senator, and then President, that so many of the colleagues that he'd fought with were dying prematurely, not because of the diseases of the 19th century, but because they had taken their own lives. The United States Army began collecting statistics on the suicide rate for officers and men in the 1890s. Two weeks ago, I convened the very first all-government council to finally have a national conversation on veteran suicide in this country. We are bringing together DOD, HHS, HUD, the Indian Health Service, the National Institutes of Health, to finally reach out and touch those American veterans who have reached the end of desperation. 20 Americans take their lives every day who have served in uniform. That number has actually been steady for well over 100 years. 
But the tragedy for us is that 60% of those who take their lives have no contact with the Department of Veterans Affairs. We have to change that. We have to open our efforts to combat suicide by using the free market, by opening up the aperture and providing support to charities, to non-governmental organizations, and to the localities to help us find those that we cannot touch. 60% we do not see. And it hits all areas of life, but particularly in rural America and Indian country, places that are hardest for us to touch. But we need everyone's help. And if we just focus on the last tragic act in that veteran's life, this will be another federal report that serves as nothing more than a doorstop. If we don't have that national conversation on mental health, addiction, and homelessness. So why are we doing it? I didn't open up with this, but I'm going to con conclude with the reason that we are here. Since the first shots were fired at Lexington in April of 1775, 41 million Americans have put on the uniform. More than one million have died. Our department was created in the midst of the most pestilential war in American history. And not too far from where we are standing, a very tired and gaunt man stood up and created the charge that we live by. It's probably, it is the most righteous speech ever given by an American president. And he concluded a talk on why the judgments of the Lord will eventually be righteous, or as he said, righteous, and then called for us to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who will have borne the battle, but more importantly, for his widow and orphan. Few years before he passed away, Senator Helms introduced a fellow North Carolinian from Tarboro, General Hugh Shelton, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, aboard the USS North Carolina. That is our state's memorial to those who fought and died in World War II. There are 10,000 North Carolina names on that battleship. 10,000 names, North Carolinians who never returned. Senator Helms said that the ultimate tribute to our American armed forces is to respect the legacy that we all have been given and to preserve it for future generations. In 1964, when Alvin York passed away, President Johnson sent the most formidable army representative he could send to the funeral of one of America's greatest heroes, Matthew Bunker Ridgeway, the man who had led the All-American Division to victory in North Africa and Sicily, and had been charged by General Eisenhower with planning the airborne assault on Hitler's Fortress Europe. General Ridgeway, on the night before D-Day, could not sleep. He was restless. He had given the orders to the All-Americans, to the Screaming Eagles, and to the British First Airborne. He actually fell out of his cot. 
And to save himself, he, he reached up for the Old Testament and he pulled down the book of Joshua and the reference to the Battle of Jericho, to the promise that Joshua received on that, the most ferocious battle to that time in the history of the Hebrew people, that I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. In 1986, Ronald Reagan awarded General Ridgway the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And he said that heroes come when they are needed. Great men step forward when courage seems in short supply. I cannot think of a better way to honor Abraham Lincoln's legacy than to remind ourselves that we cannot fail nor forsake those who serve and have served in uniform to honor the memory of those 41 million and to honor the great men and women who always step forward when courage seems in short supply. So on behalf of our department, I thank you all for your support. I thank you for honoring the great men and women of our nation, and I thank you for allowing me to honor a great American, Senator Jesse Helms. Thank you all very much. So in keeping with the tradition of Senator Helms, he loved uh, visiting with young people, as Secretary Wilkie can probably attest to and, and others, but over 100,000 that he visited with when he was in office. He made that a priority. And uh, in keeping with that tradition, we've had some interns here from the Heritage Foundation submit some questions. And I've asked them for brevity and to keep on time that they uh, send them to me uh, via text. And so I'll start with the first one. Question one is, is, as you travel around the country, Secretary Wilkie, visiting veterans and VA facilities, what is something you perhaps didn't know as you uh, are traveling? Well, thank you. Let me, let me tell you what I've done. I've been fortunate to be at the helm for now a year and three months. Uh, I've been in 41 states. Um, I learned growing up at Fort Bragg and Fort Sill that the only way to run a military outfit is to walk the post. And let me tell you what I have discovered. Um, I have discovered that the Department of Veterans Affairs probably has the most dedicated workforce in the country, men and women who know that they have the most noble mission in the federal government. And let me tell you what has happened just in the last year. Um, you all know better than anyone that this institution was rocked and roiled by bad headline after bad headline. And there was a tremendous change in the leadership. And the President of the United States is the first candidate and then the first president to make veterans the centerpiece of his administration. And let me tell you what has happened. In the last year, the Department of Veterans Affairs has gone from 17 out of 17, or 16 out of 17, in terms of the best places in government to work, to number six. We have the highest veterans approval rate in our history, 87.7%. The Journal of the American Medical Association says that our wait times are as good or better than any in the private sector, and the annals of internal medicine have said that finally, our medical care is as good or better than in any region in the country. So what does that mean? 
It means, as I said earlier, that veterans are voting with their feet. They want to go someplace where people understand the culture and speak the language. The leadership team that the President has allowed us to assemble, some of whom are here today, all have very deep military experience. And let me tell you why that is important. There is no other part of society that is like the armed forces of the United States. No other place in America where you not only form the brotherhood of service, but that service and that brotherhood continues until the day that you die. One of my responsibilities that is not well known is that I'm responsible for hundreds of cemeteries across the country. The National Cemetery Administration of VA has the highest employee and customer satisfaction rates of any part of the federal government, including NASA. Why? It's because we have a simple way of looking at the lives of veterans. That a veteran could die twice. The first time is when that veteran passes away physically. And the second time is when we stop telling the story of the warrior. We are dedicated to that. One of the new charges that I've given to our cemetery people is I want us to put up in bronze, word for word, the words of Lincoln's second inaugural. The charge that created this incredible institution, but also the charge that in some ways is more powerful than the Gettysburg Address, that there is a higher purpose once you put on the uniform that the leadership of the D.C. National Guard is wearing right in front of me, and I thank you all for what you do for the nation. Um, so I got around the original question. Um, I have been amazed at how ready the workforce at VA, VA is for change, transformational change, because we're not only doing the things that you read, electronic health record. We're reforming the supply chain. We're reforming our personnel system. Um, we are changing the way we evaluate our capabilities as opposed to the private sector. But we are combining those great forces in America, the notion of military service and brotherhood, but also the forces of the free market, uh, allowing veterans the opportunity to choose, if they so desire, to go elsewhere. That ain't new. Bradley talked about it. We have put it into action. I always say it's remarkable here in 2019 that people in Washington, D.C. still do not understand the scale of the American West. I always say the loneliest sign in America is on Interstate 10 in Houston. It says El Paso, 910 miles. We have Americans that have to travel 700, 800 miles round trip to get to a VA facility. Why do we force them to do that if they're passing community hospitals, doctor's offices, institutions like the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, just to force them to go to a VA facility? I think that's a derogation of our responsibility to care for all those who have borne the battle. Second question from an intern. 
Secretary Wilkie. You've had the uh, opportunity to work for many leaders like Senator Helms, uh, for presidents, for uh, Secretary of Defense, now President Trump. Is there a particular leadership traits or lessons that you've learned along the way that uh, were found for you? Um, because I, I, I'm going to rattle off the names, Rumsfeld, Rice, Gates, Mattis, Trump, Bush. There's no way I'm going to talk about any one of those by, and then leave out one of the others. But I am going to talk about where I grew up. Um, I mentioned earlier that I, I visited the Nixon Library. I, I remember my mother and her fellow young Army wives watching the television pictures of the carnage on the streets of Chicago. I can see them gathered in our, our home at, at Fort Sill. Um, their husbands had either, like my father, already been to Vietnam at least once or were about ready to go to, to Vietnam. Uh, they knew that the country was ugly at the time. They saw it coming apart. And yet, they all knew they were part of a community that had a higher calling. That it didn't matter what was going on outside the walls of Fort Sill or Fort Bragg. Uh, that they were going to support the community that they had become part of. So uh, that's the world I grew up in. And the lessons that I learned about selfless service came from uh, that period. And, and Niall Gardner's here, and I can tell him that as part of my father's recovery, we were, he was allowed to go to the United Kingdom and, and teach at the um, Royal School of Artillery in Lockfield, <coughs> Wiltshire. And I remember, I remember taking trips to beautiful cities like Bath, and Wells and Oxford, and on these magnificent um, structures built by the likes of Wren and Indigo Jones, there were pockmarks. Coventry Cathedral being the greatest example of that, this medieval structure, the home of the Cathedral of St. Michael was a shell. The only thing left was the wall outside the high altar and two burnt timbers that the people of Coventry had assembled the sign of the cross where the great cross of the high altar had stood for almost 700 years. And it struck me at that time how fleeting liberty was, that here was this great nation, the home of the freedoms that we enjoy in this country, the, the, the antecedents for what we had, and they came that close to losing it. So that's a long-winded way of saying the lessons that I learned, most important ones of service came from watching people at Fort Bragg and Fort Sill, um, even when it wasn't popular to serve. One last question, and uh, the 
question is, uh, a lot is asked of the VA, but what can Americans out, outside of Washington, D.C. do maybe to help the VA or veterans as a whole? There are a lot of different programs, but what can, can, can Americans who aren't veterans do to help the department? Um, before, I, before I answer that, I, um, I want to build on a conversation that you and, you and I had uh, earlier. I mentioned um, the list of great speakers who have come here and given the Helms Lecture. As I mentioned, I introduced some of them, the last one being Ambassador Dermer. Um, I also learned uh, some very valuable lessons working in the United States Senate in the 1990s. Um, I looked, Senator Helms had a great wall. It wasn't a glory wall that you see in most politicians' offices that just have the politician with the, uh, the arm around the celebrity. Uh, in fact, the only celebrities on that wall were close friends of his, names like Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne, not ordinary celebrities. But there were other pictures. Hubert Humphrey, Jimmy Carter, even Alan Cranston and Howell Heflin. The reason I say this is that I learned a valuable lesson that I mentioned at the beginning uh, of this discussion, that the person that you disagree with um, in the middle of the day is somebody you, you leave the room with with your arm around. It was a better time. Senator Helms' best friends in the United States Senate were people like Lloyd Benson and Dale Bumpers and David Pryor. One of the saddest moments of his tenure in the United States Senate was uh, the day that a plane crashed in Minnesota, and it took the life of Senator Paul Wellstone. Now, you could not find two figures in this country from more polar opposites than Jesse Helms from Monroe, North Carolina, and Paul Wellstone from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And yet, they had a special love between them that transcended politics. And I will tell you, when I was working for Senator Lott as the floor manager, Senator Helms had a terrible bout uh, that actually led to um, uh, another heart surgery. And Senator Wellstone saw me. He hadn't seen Senator Helms in a few days. And he said, I hadn't seen, I haven't seen Jesse. And then I explained it to him, and he, he got visibly upset. He said, can you help me? I said, sure. He said, can you arrange for me to go to Bethesda? And I called the Capitol Police, and Paul Wellstone, when Jesse Helms was running WRAL-TV in Raleigh, the station my wife and I grew up watching. Uh, I arranged for the Capitol Police to take Paul Wellstone to the Bethesda Naval Hospital so he could sit by the bed of somebody who probably said something bad about him during the Vietnam protests when Paul Wellstone was a student at the University of North Carolina. That was America. And I'll tell you one other story. It's from the late Lloyd Benson. And by the way, you know, some of Senator Helms' books, you need to read the acknowledgments and the endorsements. Joe Biden, Madeleine Albright, 
people who worked with him and appreciated his honesty. But um, when Senator Helms had his first heart surgery, he was running for reelection. And I won't mention the senator's name who was running the Democratic Senatorial Committee, but he was trying to get Lloyd Benston to go in and campaign in North Carolina against Jesse Helms. And after the third request, Lloyd Benson told me this. He turned around and he said, you don't, you don't under, seem to understand how this place works. Mark Disler knows this because he was with Orrin Hatch at the time. J Jesse Helms is my friend, and more importantly, Dot Helms is Beryl Benson's best friend, and I'm too old to get a divorce. <laughs> and what do you think would happen to the state of Texas if I went to North Carolina and campaigned against Jesse Helms? He would have us tied in so many knots, I'd be opening an Auntie Anne's franchise. <laughs> there is a sublime part to that that I, I think many of us miss today. Uh, that you had politicians of great passion, um, great verve, but at the end of the day, uh, they talked about families, they talked about friendship, and they talked about what uh, is good for the country. Uh, I wanted to say that because that was one of the great lessons I learned working in the United States Senate for Helms and Lott. And it's one of the lessons that I think those of us who work at VA share. We share that vision. This is one place where we need to put aside partisan divisions and work well and work for those who have borne the battle. Now, what was your question? <laughs> well, quickly. Go ahead. Go ahead. I think. Uh, oh, how we can help. How we can help. That's. Well, we can help not just by saying thank you for your service. You can help by um, doing things like supporting uh, Fisher House. You can do things by volunteering at a shelter or a vet center. Um, you can do things by um, paying attention to what's going on in the community. Uh, my wife and I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina, sitting underneath Fort Bragg, 90 minutes away from Camp Lejeune. Um, we have members of our family who spend a great time with a wonderful organization, uh, church charity. Uh, every week they're out um, finding veterans who are homeless in our community. That's the kind of thing we can all do. The other thing that I would recommend, um, and it is not something that you can manifest materially, um, and it is to ensure that um, every day uh, when you read the headlines, uh, you just think that there is a greater purpose out there. Um, that uh, no matter what is going on, uh, this country um, has always endured. And uh, when you see somebody you recognize as uh, having served, just strike up, strike up a conversation. You don't have to say thank you for your service. Just You can do that, but just talk. 
think that's a very important thing. And this concludes our program. And on behalf of the Jesse Helm Center and the Heritage Foundation, thank you for coming. And thank you, Secretary Wilk, for your uh, words uh, today. Your thank you all.